Send Me to Sleep is a production of Slumber Studios and is made possible thanks to the generous support of our sponsors and premium members. If you'd like to listen ad-free, you can try out Premium free for seven days by following the link in the episode notes. Now, we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew. Thanks for joining me and for taking this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Part 2, Chapters 13 and 14. In the previous chapters, a disagreement between Ned Land and Captain Nemo made Professor Aranax have cause to watch Ned more closely. In the following chapters, the Nautilus encounters some vast and icy obstacles. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cozy. Take a deep, relaxing breath and settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 13 The Iceberg The Nautilus was steadily pursuing its southerly course, following the 15th meridian with considerable speed. Did he wish to reach the pole? I did not think so, for every attempt to reach that point had hitherto failed. Again, the season was far advanced, for in the Arctic regions, the 13th of March corresponds with the 13th of September of northern regions, which begin at the equinoctial season. On the 14th of March, I saw floating ice in latitude 55 degrees, merely pale bits of debris from 20 to 25 feet long, forming banks over which the sea curled. The Nautilus remained on the surface of the ocean. Ned Land, who had fished in the Arctic seas, was familiar with its icebergs, but Concier and I admired them for the first time. In the atmosphere towards the southern horizon stretched a white, dazzling band. English whalers have given it the name of Ice Blink. However thick the clouds may be, it is always visible and announces the presence of an ice pack or bank. Accordingly, larger blocks soon appeared whose brilliancy changed with the caprices of the fog. Some of these masses showed green veins, as if long, undulating lines had been traced with sulfate of copper. Others resembled enormous amethysts, with the light shining through them. Some reflected the light of day upon a thousand crystal facets, others shaded with vivid calcareous reflections resembled a perfect town of marble. The more we neared the south, the more these floating islands increased both in number and importance. 
At 60 degrees latitude, every pass had disappeared. But, seeking carefully, Captain Nemo soon found a narrow opening through which he boldly slipped, knowing, however, that it would close behind him. Thus, guided by this clever hand, the Nautilus passed through all the ice with a precision which quite charmed Concierge. Icebergs or mountains, ice fields or smooth plains, seeming to have no limits, drift ice or floating ice packs, plains broken up, called palks when they are circular, and streams when they are made up of long strips. The temperature was low, very low. The thermometer exposed to the air marked two degrees, or three degrees below zero. But we were warmly clad with fur, at the expense of the sea bear and seal. The interior of the Nautilus, warmed regularly by its electric apparatus, defied the most intense cold. Besides, it would only have been necessary to go some yards beneath the waves to find a more bearable temperature. Two months earlier, we should have had perpetual daylight in these latitudes, but already we had had three or four hours of night, and by and by there would be six months of darkness in these circumpolar regions. On the 15th of March, we were in the latitude of New Shetland and South Orkney. The captain told me that formerly numerous tribes of seals inhabited them, but that English and American whalers, in their rage of destruction, massacred both old and young. Thus, where there was once life and animation, they had left silence and death. About eight o'clock on the morning of the 16th of March, the Nautilus following the 55th meridian cut the Antarctic polar circle. Ice surrounded us on all sides and closed the horizon, but Captain Nemo went from one opening to another, still going higher. I cannot express my astonishment at the beauties of these new regions. The ice took most surprising forms. Here the groupings formed an oriental town, with innumerable mosques and mirinettes. There, a fallen city, thrown to the earth, as it were, by some convulsion of nature. The whole aspect was constantly changed by the oblique rays of the sun, or lost in the greyish fog amidst hurricanes of snow. Detonations and falls were heard on all sides, great overthrows of icebergs, which altered the whole landscape like a diorama. Often seeing no exit, I thought we were definitely prisoners, but instinct guiding him at the slightest indication, Captain Nemo would discover a new path. He was never mistaken when he saw the thin threads of bluish water trickling along the ice fields, and I had no doubt that he had already ventured into the midst of these Antarctic seas before. On the 16th of March, however, the ice fields absolutely blocked our road. It was not the iceberg itself as yet, but vast fields cemented by the cold. But this obstacle could not stop Captain Nemo. 
he hurled himself against it with frightful violence. The Nautilus entered the brittle mass like a wedge and split it with frightful crackings. It was the battering ram of the ancients hurled by infinite strength. The ice, thrown high in the air, fell like hail around us. By its own power of impulsion, our apparatus made a canal for itself, sometimes carried away by its own impetus. It lodged on the ice field, crushing it with its weight, and sometimes buried beneath it, dividing it by a simple pinching movement, producing large rents in it. Violent gales assailed us at this time, accompanied by thick fog through which, from one end of the platform to the other, we could see nothing. The wind blew sharply from all parts of the compass, and the snow lay in such hard heaps that we had to break it with blows of a pickaxe. The temperature was always at five degrees below zero. Every outward part of the Nautilus was covered with ice. A rigged vessel would have been entangled in the blocked-up gorges. A vessel without sails, with electricity for its motive power, and wanting no coal, could alone brave such high latitudes. At length, on the 18th of March, after many useless assaults, the Nautilus was positively blocked. It was no longer either streams, packs, or ice fields, but an interminable and immovable barrier formed by mountains soldered together. An iceberg said the Canadian to me. I knew that to Ned Land, as well as to all other navigators who had preceded us, this was an inevitable obstacle. The sun appeared for an instant at noon. Captain Nemo took an observation as near as possible, which gave our situation at 51 degrees 30 feet longitude and 67 degrees, 39 feet of south latitude. We had advanced one degree more in this Antarctic region. Of the liquid surface of the sea, there was no longer a glimpse. Under the spur of the Nautilus lay stretched a vast plain, entangled with confused blocks. Here and there, sharp points and slender needles rising to a height of two hundred feet, further on a steep shore, hewn as it were with an axe and clothed with greyish tints, huge mirrors reflecting a few rays of sunshine, half drowned in fog. And over this desolate face of nature, a stern silence reigned, scarcely broken by the flapping of the wings of the petrels and puffins. Everything was frozen, even the noise. The Nautilus was then obliged to stop in its adventurous course amid these fields of ice. In spite of our efforts, in spite of the powerful means employed to break up the ice, the Nautilus remained immovable. Generally, when we can proceed no further, we have return still open to us, but here return was as impossible as advance, for every pass had closed behind us and for the few moments when we were stationary, we were likely to be entirely blocked. 
which did indeed happen about two o'clock in the afternoon, the fresh ice forming around its sides with astonishing rapidity. I was obliged to admit that Captain Nemo was more than imprudent. I was on the platform at that moment. The captain had been observing our situation for some time past, and he said to me, Well, sir, what do you think of this? I think that we are caught, Captain. So, Monsieur Arnax, you really think that the Nautilus cannot disengage itself? With difficulty, Captain, for the reason is already too far advanced for you to reckon on the breaking of the ice. Ah, sir, said Captain Nemo in an ironical tone. You will always be the same. You see nothing but difficulties and obstacles. I affirm that not only can the Nautilus disengage itself, but also that it can go further still. Further to the south, I asked, looking at the captain. Yes, sir. It shall go to the pole. To the pole? I exclaimed, unable to repress a gesture of incredulity. Yes, replied the captain coldly. To the Antarctic Pole, to that unknown point from whence springs every meridian of the globe. You know whether I can do as I please with the Nautilus. Yes, I knew that. I knew that this man was bold, even to rashness. But to conquer those obstacles which bristled round the South Pole rendering it more inaccessible than the north, which had not yet been reached by the boldest navigators. Was it not a mad enterprise, one which only a maniac would have conceived? It then came into my head to ask Captain Nemo if he had ever discovered that pole which had never yet been trodden by a human creature. No, sir. He replied, But we will discover it together. Where others have failed, I will not fail. I have never yet led my Nautilus so far into southern seas, but I repeat, I shall go further yet. I can well believe you, Captain, said I, in a slightly ironical tone. I believe you. Let us go ahead. There are no obstacles for us. Let us smash this iceberg. Let us blow it up. And, if it resists, let us give the Nautilus wings to fly over it. Over it, sir, said Captain Nemo quietly. No, not over it but under it. Under it, I exclaimed. A sudden idea of the captain's project flashing upon my mind. I understood. The wonderful qualities of the Nautilus were going to serve us in this superhuman enterprise. I see we are beginning to understand one another, sir said the captain, half smiling. You begin to see the possibilities, I should say the success, of this attempt. That which is impossible for an ordinary vessel is easy to the Nautilus. If a continent lies before the pole, it must stop before the continent. But if, on the contrary, the pole is washed by open sea. It will go even to the pole. 
Certainly, said I, carried away by the captain's reasoning. If the surface of the sea is solidified by the ice, the lower depths are free by the providential law which has placed the maximum of density of waters of the ocean one degree higher than the freezing point. And, if I am not mistaken, the portion of this iceberg which is above the water is as of one to four to that which is below. Very nearly, sir. For one foot of iceberg above the sea, there are three below it. If these ice mountains are not more than 300 feet above the surface, they are not more than 900 beneath. And what are 900 feet to the Nautilus? Nothing, sir. It could even seek at greater depths than uniform temperature of seawater, and there brave with impunity the 30 or 40 degrees of surface cold. Just so, sir. Just so, I replied, getting animated. The only difficulty, continued the captain, is that of remaining several days without renewing our provisions of air. Is that all? The Nautilus has vast reservoirs. We can fill them, and they will supply us with all the oxygen we want. Well sort of, Monsieur Arnax, replied the captain, smiling. But, not wishing you to accuse me of rashness, I will first give you all my objections. Have you any more to make? Only one. It is possible, if the sea exists at the South Pole, that it may be covered, and consequently... We shall be unable to come to the surface. Good sir, but do you forget that the Nautilus is armed with a powerful spur, and could we not send it diagonally against these fields of ice, which was open at the shock? Ah, sir, you are full of ideas today. Besides, Captain, I added enthusiastically. Why should we not find the sea open at the South Pole as well as at the North? The frozen poles of the Earth do not coincide, either in the southern or in the northern regions, and, until it is proved to the contrary, we may suppose either a continent or an ocean free from ice in these two points of the globe. I think so too, Monsieur Arnax, replied Captain Nemo. I only wish you to observe that, after having made so many objections to my project, you are now crushing me with arguments in its favor. The preparations for this audacious attempt now began. The powerful pumps of the Nautilus were working air into the reservoirs and storing it at a high pressure. About four o'clock, Captain Nemo announced the closing of the panels on the platform. I threw one last look at the massive iceberg which we were going to cross. The weather was clear, the atmosphere pure enough, the cold very great being 12 degrees below zero, but the wind having gone down, this temperature was not so unbearable. About ten men mounted the sides of the Nautilus, armed with pickaxes to break the ice around the vessel, which was soon free. The operation was quickly performed, for the fresh ice was still very thin. We all went below. The usual reservoirs were filled with the newly liberated water, and the Nautilus soon descended. 
I had taken my place with Concierge in the saloon. Through the open window, we could see the lower beds of the Southern Ocean. The thermometer went up. The needle of the compass deviated on the dial. At about 900 feet, as Captain Nemo had foreseen, we were floating beneath the undulating bottom of the iceberg. But the Nautilus went lower still. It went to a depth of 400 fathoms. The temperature of the water at the surface showed 12 degrees. It was now only 10. We had gained two. I need not say the temperature of the Nautilus was raised by its heating apparatus to a much higher degree. Every maneuver was accomplished with wonderful precision. We shall pass it, if you please, sir, said Concier, in a tone of firm conviction. In this open sea, the Nautilus had taken its course direct to the pole, without leaving the 52nd meridian. From 67 degrees 30 feet to 90 degrees, 22 degrees and a half of latitude remained to travel. That is, about 500 leagues. The Nautilus kept up a mean speed of 26 miles an hour, the speed of an express train. If that was kept up, in 40 hours we should reach the pole. For a part of the night, the novelty of the situation kept us up at the window. The sea was lit with the electric lantern, but it was deserted. Fishes did not sojourn in these imprisoned waters. They only found there a passage to take them from the Antarctic Ocean to the open polar sea. Our pace was rapid. We could feel it by the quivering of the long steel body. About two in the morning, I took some hours' repose, and Concier did the same. In crossing the waste, I did not meet Captain Nemo. I supposed him to be in the pilot's cage. The next morning, the 19th of March, I took my post once more in the saloon. The electric log told me that the speed of the Nautilus had been slackened. It was then going towards the surface, but prudently emptying its reservoirs very slowly. My heart beat fast. Were we going to emerge and regain the open polar atmosphere? No. A shock told me that the Nautilus had struck the bottom of the iceberg still very thick, judging from the deadened sound. We had indeed struck, to use a sea expression, but in an inverse sense, and at a thousand feet deep. This would give three thousand feet of ice above us, one thousand being above the water mark. The iceberg was then higher than at its borders, not a very reassuring fact. Several times that day, the Nautilus tried again, and every time it struck the wall which lay like a ceiling above it. Sometimes it met with but 900 yards, only 200 of which rose above the surface. It was twice the height it was when the Nautilus had gone under the waves. I carefully noted the different depths, and thus obtained a submarine profile of the chain as it was developed under the water. That night, no change had taken place in our situation. Still ice between four and five hundred yards in depth. It was evidently diminishing, but still, what a thickness between us and the surface of the ocean. 
It was then eight. According to the daily custom on board the Nautilus, its air should have been renewed four hours ago. But I did not suffer much. Although Captain Nemo had not yet made any demand upon his reserve of oxygen. My sleep was painful that night. Hope and fear besieged me by turns. I rose several times. The groping of the Nautilus continued. About three in the morning, I noticed that the lower surface of the iceberg was only about fifty feet deep. One hundred and fifty feet now separated us from the surface of the waters. The iceberg was by degrees becoming an ice field, the mountain a plain. My eyes never left the manometer. We were still rising diagonally to the surface, which sparkled under the electric rays. The iceberg was stretching both above and beneath into the lengthening slopes. Mile after mile, it was getting thinner. At length, at six in the morning of that memorable day, the 19th of March, the door of the saloon opened and Captain Nemo appeared. The sea is open, was all he said. Chapter 14 the South Pole. I rushed onto the platform. Yes, the open sea, with but a few scattered pieces of ice and moving icebergs. A long stretch of sea, a world of birds in the air, and myriads of fishes under those waters which varied from intense blue to olive green, according to the bottom. The thermometer marked three degrees C above zero. It was comparatively spring, shut up as we were behind this iceberg, whose lengthened mass was dimly seen on our northern horizon. Are we at the pole? I asked the captain with a beating heart. I do not know, he replied. At noon I will take our bearings. But will the sun show himself through this fog, said I, looking at the leaden sky. However little it shows, it will be enough, replied the captain. About ten miles south, a solitary island rose to a height of 104 yards. We made for it, but carefully, for the sea might be strewn with banks. One hour afterwards, we had reached it. Two hours later, we had made the round of it. It measures four or five miles in circumference. A narrow canal separated it from a considerable stretch of land, perhaps a continent, for we could not see its limits. The existence of this land seemed to give some colour to Maori's theory. The ingenious American has remarked that between the South Pole and the 16th parallel, the sea is covered with floating ice of enormous size, which is never met with in the North Atlantic. From this fact, he has drawn the conclusion that the Antarctic Circle encloses considerable continents, as icebergs cannot form in the open sea, but only on the coast. According to these calculations, the mass of ice surrounding the southern poles form a vast cap, the circumference of which must be, at least, 2,500 miles 
but the Nautilus, for fear of running aground, had stopped about three cables length from a strand over which reared a superb heap of rocks. The boat was launched. The captain, two of his men, bearing instruments, Concier and myself, were in it. It was ten in the morning. I had not seen Ned Land. Doubtless the Canadian did not wish to admit the presence of the South Pole. A few strokes of the oar brought us to the sand, where we ran ashore. Concier was going to jump onto the land when I held him back. Sir, said I to Captain Nemo, to you belongs the honor of first setting foot on this land. Yes, sir, said the captain, and if I do not hesitate to tread this south pole, it is because, up to this time, no human being has ever left a trace there. Saying this, he jumped lightly onto the sand. His heart beat with emotion. He climbed a rock, sloping to a little promontory, and there, with his arms crossed, mute and motionless, and with an eager look, he seemed to take possession of these southern regions. After five minutes passed in this ecstasy, he turned to us. When you like, sir. I landed, followed by Concier, leaving the two men in the boat. For a long way, the soil was composed of a reddish sandstone, something like crushed brick, scoriae, streams of lava, and pumice stones. One could not mistake its volcanic origin. In some parts, slight curls of smoke emitted a sulfurous smell, proving that the internal fires had lost nothing of their expansive powers, though, having climbed a high acclivity, I could see no volcano for a radius of several miles. We know that in those Antarctic countries, James Ross found two craters, the Erebus and Terror, in full activity on the 167th meridian, latitude 77 degrees 32 feet. The vegetation of this desolate continent seemed to me much restricted. Some lichens lay upon the black rocks, some microscopic plants, rudimentary diatomas, a kind of cells placed between two quartz shells, long purple and scarlet weeds, supported on little swimming bladders, which the breaking of the waves brought to the shore. These constituted the meagre flora of this region. The shore was strewn with mollusks, little mussels and limpets. I also saw myriads of northern cleos, and one and a quarter inches long, of which a whale would swallow a whole world at a mouthful, and some perfect sea butterflies animating the water on the skirts of the shore. There appeared on the high bottoms of the coral shrubs, of the kind which, according to James Ross, live in the Antarctic seas to the depth of more than a thousand yards. Then there were little kingfishers and starfish studding the soil. But where life abounded most was in the air. There thousands of birds fluttered and flew of all kinds, deafening us with their cries 
Others crowded the rocks, looking at us as we passed by without fear and pressing familiarly close by our feet. There were penguins, so agile in the water, heavy and awkward as they are on the ground. They were uttering harsh cries, a large assembly, sober in gesture, but extravagant in clamour. Albatrosses passed in the air, the expanse of their wings being at least four yards and a half, and justly called the vultures of the ocean. Some gigantic petrels, and some damers, a kind of small duck, the underpart of whose body is black and white. Then there were a whole series of petrels, some whitish, with brown bordered wings, others blue, peculiar to the Antarctic seas, and so oily, as I told Conseil, that the inhabitants of the Faroe Islands had nothing to do before lighting them but to put a wick in it. A little more, said Conseil, and they would be perfect lamps. After that, we cannot expect nature to have previously furnished them with wicks. About half a mile farther on the soil was riddled with ruffs' nests, a sort of laying ground out of which many birds were issuing. Captain Nemo had some hundreds hunted. They uttered a cry like the braying of an ass were about the size of a goose, slate colour on the body, white beneath, with a yellow line round their throats. They allowed themselves to be killed with a stone, never trying to escape. But the fog did not lift, and at eleven the sun had not yet shown itself. Its absence made me uneasy. Without it, no observations were possible. How then could we decide whether we had reached the pole? When I rejoined Captain Nemo, I found him leaning on a piece of rock, silently watching the sky. He seemed impatient and vexed. But what was to be done? This rash and powerful man not command the sun as he did the sea. Noon arrived without the orb of day showing itself for an instant. We could not even tell its position behind the curtain of fog, and soon the fog turned to snow. Till tomorrow, said the captain quietly, and we returned to the Nautilus amid these atmospheric disturbances. The tempest of snow continued till the next day. It was impossible to remain on the platform. From the saloon, where I was taking notes of incidents happening during this excursion to the polar continent, I could hear the cries of petrels and albatrosses sporting in the midst of this violent storm. The Nautilus did not remain motionless, but skirted the coast, advancing ten miles more to the south in the half-light left by the sun as it skirted the edges of the horizon. The next day, the 20th of March, the snow had ceased. The cold was a little greater, the thermometer showing two degrees below zero. The fog was rising, and I hoped that that day our observations might be taken. Captain Nemo not having yet appeared, the boat took Conseil and myself to land. The soil was still of the same volcanic nature. Everywhere were traces of lava, scoriae, and basalt. 
but the crater which had vomited them I could not see. Here, as lower down, this continent was alive with myriads of birds. But their rule was now divided with large troops of sea mammals looking at us with their soft eyes. There were several kinds of seals, some stretched on the earth, some on flakes of ice, many going in and out of the sea. They did not flee at our approach, never having had anything to do with man, and I reckoned that there were provisions there for hundreds of vessels. Sir, said Concier, will you tell me the names of these creatures? They are seals and morses. It was now eight in the morning. Four hours remained to us before the sun could be observed with advantage. I directed our steps towards a vast bay cut in the steep granite shore. There, I can aver that earth and ice were lost to sight by the number of sea mammals covering them, and I involuntarily sought for old Proteus, the mythological shepherd who watched these immense flocks of Neptune. There were more seals than anything else, forming distinct groups, male and female the father watching over his family, the mother suckling her little ones, some already strong enough to go a few steps. Then they wished to change their place. They took little jumps, made by the contraction of their bodies, and helped awkwardly enough by their imperfect fin, which, as with the Lamatin, their cousins form a perfect forearm. I should say that, in the water, which is their element, the spine of these creatures is flexible, with smooth and close skin and webbed feet. They swim admirably. In resting on the earth, they take the most graceful attitudes. Thus the ancients, Observing their soft and expressive looks, which cannot be surpassed by the most beautiful look a woman can give, their clear voluptuous eyes, their charming position, and the poetry of their manners, metamorphosized them, the male into a triton, and the female into a mermaid. I made Concier notice the considerable development of the lobes of the brains of these interesting cetaceans. No mammal, except man, has such a quantity of brain matter. They are also capable of receiving a certain amount of education, are easily domesticated, and I think, with other naturalists, that if properly taught, they would be of great service as fishing dogs. The greater part of them slept on the rocks or on sand. Amongst these seals, properly so called, which have no external ears, in which they differ from the otter, whose ears are prominent, I noticed several varieties of seals about three yards long, with a white coat, bulldog heads, armed with teeth in both jaws, four incisors at the top and four at the bottom, the two large canine teeth in the shape of fleur-de-lis. Amongst them glided sea elephants, a kind of seal with short, flexible trunks. The giants of this species measured twenty feet round and ten yards and a half in length. But they did not move as we approached. These creatures are not dangerous? asked Concier. No, 
not unless you attack them. When they have to defend their young, their rage is terrible, and it is not uncommon for them to break the fishing boats to pieces. They are quite right, said Concier. I do not say that they are not. Two miles farther on, we were stopped by the promontory which shelters the bay from the southerly winds. Beyond it, we heard loud bellowings, such as a troop of ruminants would produce. Good, said Concier. A concert of bulls. No, a concert of morses. They are fighting. They are either fighting or playing. We now began to climb the blackish rocks amid unforeseen stumbles and over stones which the ice made slippery. More than once I rolled over at the expense of my loins. Concier, more prudent or more steady, did not stumble and helped me up, saying, If, sir, you would have the kindness to take wider steps, you would preserve your equilibrium better. Arrived at the upper ridge of the promontory, I saw a vast white plain covered with mosses. They were playing amongst themselves, and what we heard were bellowings of pleasure, not anger. As I passed these curious animals, I could examine them at my leisure, for they did not move. Their skins were thick and rugged, of a yellowish tint, approaching to red. Their hair was short and scant. Some of them were four yards and a quarter long, quieter and less timid than their cousins of the north. They did not, like them, place sentinels round the outskirts of their encampment. After examining this city of morses, I began to think of returning. It was eleven o'clock and if Captain Nemo found the conditions favorable for observations, I wished to be present at the operation. We followed a narrow pathway running along the summit of the steep shore. At half past eleven, we had reached the place where we landed. The boat had run aground, bringing the captain. I saw him standing on a block of basalt, his instruments near him, his eyes fixed on the northern horizon, near which the sun was then describing a lengthened curve. I took my place beside him and waited without speaking. Noon arrived, and as before, the sun did not appear. It was a fatality. Observations were still wanting. If not accomplished tomorrow, we must give up all idea of taking any. We were indeed exactly at the 20th of March. Tomorrow, the 21st, would be the equinox. The sun would disappear behind the horizon for six months and with its disappearance, the long polar night would begin. Since the September equinox, it had emerged from the northern horizon, rising by lengthened spirals up to the 21st of December. At this period, the summer solstice of the northern regions, it had begun to descend and tomorrow was to shed its last rays upon them. I communicated my fears and observations to Captain Nemo, 
You are right, Monsieur Arnax, said he. If tomorrow I cannot take the altitude of the sun, I shall not be able to do it for six months. But precisely because chance has led me into these seas on the 21st of March, my bearings will be easy to take if at twelve we can see the sun. Why, Captain? Because then the orb of day described such lengthened curves that it is difficult to measure exactly its height above the horizon, and grave errors may be made with instruments. What will you do then? I shall only use my chronometer, replied Captain Nemo. If tomorrow, the 21st of March, the disk of the sun allowing for refractions is exactly cut by the northern horizon, it will show that I am at the South Pole. Just so, said I. But this statement is not mathematically correct, because the equinox does not necessarily begin at noon. Very likely, sir, but the error will not be a hundred yards, and we do not want more. Till tomorrow, then. Captain Nemo returned on board. Concier and I remained to survey the shore observing and studying until five o'clock. Then I went to bed, not, however, without invoking, like the Indian, the favour of the radiant orb. The next day, the 21st of March, at five in the morning, I mounted the platform. I found Captain Nemo there, The weather is lightening a little, said he. I have some hope. After breakfast, we will go on shore and choose a post for observation. That point being settled, I sought Ned Land. I wanted to take him with me. But the obstinate Canadian refused, and I saw that his taciturnity and his bad humour grew day by day. After all, I was not sorry for his obstinacy under the circumstances. Indeed, there were too many seals on shore, and we ought not to lay such temptation in this unreflecting fisherman's way. Breakfast over, we went on shore. The Nautilus had gone some miles further in the night. I was a whole league from the coast, above which reared a sharp peak about five hundred yards high. The boat took with me Captain Nemo, two men of the crew and the instruments, which consisted of a chronometer, a telescope, and a barometer. While crossing, I saw numerous whales belonging to the three kinds peculiar to the southern seas. The whale, or the English right whale, which has no dorsal fin. The humpback, with reeved chest and large, whitish fins, which, in spite of its name, do not form wings. And the finback, of a yellowish-brown the liveliest of all the cetacea. This powerful creature is heard a long way off when he throws to a great height columns of air and vapour, which look like whirlwinds of smoke. These different mammals were disporting themselves in troops in the water, and I could see that this basin of the Antarctic Pole served as a place of refuge to the cetacea, too closely tracked by the hunters. I noticed large medusae floating between the reeds. 
At nine, we landed. The sky was brightening. The clouds were flying to the south, and the fog seemed to be leaving the cold surface of the waters. Captain Nemo went towards the peak, which he doubtless meant to be his observations. It was a painful ascent over the sharp lava and the pumice stones, in an atmosphere often impregnated with a sulfurous smell from the smoking cracks. For a man unaccustomed to walk on land, the captain climbed the steep slopes with an agility I never saw equaled, and which a hunter would have envied. We were two hours getting to the summit of this peak, which was half proffery and half basalt. From thence, we looked upon a vast sea, which, towards the north, distinctly traced its boundary line upon the sky. At our feet lay fields of dazzling whiteness. Over our heads, a pale azure, free from fog. To the north, the disk of the sun seemed like a ball of fire, already horned by the cutting of the horizon. From the bosom of the water rose sheaves of liquid jets by hundreds. In the distance lay the Nautilus, like a cetacean asleep on the water. Behind us, to the south and east, an immense country and a chaotic heap of rocks and ice, the limits of which were not visible. On arriving at the summit, Captain Nemo carefully took the mean height of the barometer, for he would have to consider that in taking his observations. At a quarter to twelve, the sun, then seen only by refraction, looked like a golden disk, shedding its last rays upon this deserted continent and seas which never man had yet ploughed. Captain Nemo, furnished with a lenticular glass which, by means of a mirror, corrected the refraction, watched the orb sinking below the horizon by degrees following a lengthened diagonal. I held the chronometer. My heart beat fast. If the disappearance of the half-disc of the sun coincided with twelve o'clock on the chronometer, we were at the pole itself. Twelve, I exclaimed. The South Pole, replied Captain Nemo in a grave voice, handing me the glass, which showed the orb cut in exactly equal parts by the horizon. I looked at the last rays crowning the peak, and the shadows mounting by degrees up its slopes. At this moment, Captain Nemo, resting with his hand on my shoulder, said, I... Captain Nemo, on this 21st day of March, 1868, I've reached the South Pole on the 19th degree, and I take possession of this part of the globe, equal to one-sixth of the known continents. In whose name, Captain? In my own, sir. Saying which... Captain Nemo unfurled a black banner, bearing an N in gold, quartered on its bunting. Then, turning towards the orb of day, whose last rays lapped the horizon of the sea, he exclaimed, Adieu, son. Disappear, thou radiant orb. Rest beneath this open sea and let a night of six months spread its shadows over my new domains.